Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture with me, Tom Edwards, standing in for Robert Bound. Today's programme takes us to Take Modern, whose big summer show this year is by Olafur Eliasson. This marks a return to the Tate for the Danish-Icelandic artist whose groundbreaking 2003 show, The Weather Project, transformed the building's turbine hall into a giant beam of sunshine, attracting crowds in the millions and turning Eliasson from a prominent artist into something of an art world superstar. In Real Life is the name of the new exhibition, and it's a large retrospective of his work to date, which often deals with ideas around weather and climate change. It's a multi-sensory, geometric experience as you enter rooms filled with fog, moss and kaleidoscopes, forming a colourful, interactive show that works for families on summer holidays, as well as the regular art crowd. Something for everyone, it would seem, but was it for our critics. Well, let's find out. Joining me on the programme today are the writer and curator Francesca Gavin and editor-at-large of the art newspaper Jane Morris. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Welcome both to the show. Um, let's start off by talking a little bit about Eliasson's relationship with, with Tate because I mentioned in the introduction the 2003 mm. show and that was obviously, well, it, it seems, I guess, looking from the outside, that was a real critical moment, a bit of a turning point for, for him. Is it, is it to do with the relationship with the institution itself? Is it just about his work sort of reaching the sort of wider public consciousness? I mean, I think it was also a turning point for the Tate itself. It was a moment where that kind of millennial project of something huge made sense. It was the first really large-scale interactive work that's had such broad, pers- you know, global success that it almost changed the interest in art. It was like Instagrammable art before Instagram, if that makes sense. So I think like, and obviously that had an enormous effect on his career in terms of his focus on what he was doing. I mean, in terms of the content, I mean, what's great, but he makes a few little references to that work in the lifts going up and in the hallway outside. They've still got that wonderful yellow light that kind of makes your skin go weird and your eyes funny, um, which I thought was quite cute that he was kind of referencing that this exhibition was emerging from that heritage. And to this point, I suppose, about, yeah, immersive art almost, uh, Jane, does it... I don't know. Do you ever worry about that balance? Because I, when I went to this exhibition, took my kids. They were running around, and it is. It's it's a it's a veritable playground for a th- certainly for a three year old. Too much so? Is that a balance we need to be careful about striking? Well, it's actually always been a debate around Eliasson's work. I mean, I think Hal Foster was, uh, who's a, a you know a famous critic and writer, um, has always been quite sceptical of that mm. and uh, has suggested it's more phenomenon and effect and um, not in a not in a very flashing way. So for some people, a bit like Carsten Holler, who I think followed a year later, there's a bit of a sense of art as fairground or art as uh, yeah. So there's there's always been that. Suspicion other critics feel very sort of strongly the other way and say that you know you go in and you look at the world differently by the time you've been through the exhibition for me I think there are some pieces where that is true and I think you you so I think I think he's patchy I think he does slip mm. into it sometimes I mean for me what really comes across like in the exhibition is in fact not necessarily its interactive nature which is super appealing but how he's using art not in, in a necessarily normal creative art way but as a platform to talk about other things yeah, I mean, he's really an artist activist, isn't yeah. he, in the tradition of, I guess, Theaster Gates or Ai Weiwei. Um, well, and it, it is a real sort of take takeover, you know, to the, from the food and the restaurants to outside spaces. Whatever we think of that process, Francesca, has he, has he done it well? 
I mean, I enjoyed it. I'm not going to pretend I don't in the same way that particularly when you're in the immersive nature things, things that play with your perception in a really deep way. So there's an amazing piece where it's a droplet of water and you've got this flashing light coming on like a strobe, a very slow strobe. And every single time the strobe lights on, the water is frozen essentially in your eyes like a camera for a minute in a different shape. And for me, that was incredible. And then there's another work, which is you walk down a big long hallway and you're walking through fog and you can only see, let's say, coloured fog about a metre in front of you. And it's incredibly sensorial. So I find that super effective. Things which are more, let's say, child-orientated, things that are more like, look at my shadow, look at a kaleidoscope, mm. yeah. this would make a nice picture, doesn't do it for me. It was the things that played with your physical bodily sort of perception that I think were super successful. Yeah, the walk, the walk through the, the corridor of fog. I mean, I found that almost stress-inducing because I... The blind passage. Yeah, and you nearly are. There are pains to point out what you can do. You can look up to the ceiling, which you actually can still see, or reach for the walls if you become a slightly, uh, I don't know, yeah, nervous about, about yeah, seeing yeah. the way. Interestingly, obviously, the context of any piece of art is, is critical, how the viewer is viewing. In this case... In, the, in the, the the dark room with the pulses of light, big your, bang fountain. <laughs> your, your your co-viewers are very much part of the experience. Sort of elbowing people, I blundered into people on several occasions. D- does that then become? Does that become part of the experience? Well, like, and so does the queue. I mean, waiting to go yeah. into an instant. I wrote a piece about this once. So the idea of queuing is actually a way of making people anticipate and focus on the work more itself once you do it. And I actually think the way they incorporated queuing into spaces so you'd be viewing other works at the same time was really successful. Because most of the time when you're in an art queue, I mean, or any queue, I'm from London. I really don't <laughs> like queuing. That you that you get really frustrated. Whereas this, I think, kind of did at least have other things for you to engage with while you're in this kind of waiting zone. Mm. Well, so it's clearly part of the artwork, isn't it? I mean, you are supposed to be. Not only are you thinking about the way it changes your own perceptions, but you are supposed to be thinking of yourself in relation to other human beings, other visitors, and seeing yourself as part of a community. Which is where all this thing about the communal eating, which he does in his studio in Berlin fits into it so he takes the idea of the the viewer you know Duchamp's idea of the viewer completing the artwork and takes it a step forward I mean to be fair like some other artists of his generation yeah yeah I mean it is of a moment in a weird way but it doesn't mean some of the things aren't successful but maybe some of the more successful Mm. things are not necessarily his most current work because the current work really feels so focused on well actually almost R&D and research and basically redirecting all his attention to Extension Rebellion. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, I thought the the piece I liked the most was also an early piece. I think it was from the mid-90s. And it was the piece, I think it's called Beauty, and it's a hose with per- perforated hose with droplets of water coming down and just a light shining on it. And obviously you get this rainbow in this beautiful darkened room. And I think, you know, that, that sort of work I, I like because I like the simplicity and honesty of the materials. He's not hiding what he's doing. It's not clever and tricky. You look at it and you think, oh, yeah, we all knew we could do that, but we didn't do it. And people loved that. And it was really nice seeing people in it, but it was also quite nice just looking at it from a sort of purely aesthetic point of view. I mean, even when it's an interactive piece and you're seeing children, your children wiggle around and, like, draw and play. And actually, I think it was quite... They didn't bother me in a way. They were kind of contained within certain spaces. I didn't feel like it didn't it impacted on your experience of the other works i like the containment factor yes it was it was was, was convenient Um, but just at that point obviously for the tate it's great and they can say well look you know this is a younger generation really immersing themselves in art and building positive experiences it's clearly going to be gangbusters in terms of numbers 
But do they and other big institutions, they need to be wary about going for mass appeal over, you know, stuff with definitive sort of artistic in- integrity? Not that I'm claiming that this doesn't, of course, but is, is, again, is that something that we need to be wary about? Well, chasing the numbers maybe ahead of anything else. Every museum needs to be careful of that. Yeah. There, 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 there is a real pressure on museums to produce blockbuster exhibitions, whether it's for revenue reasons, which I think is a real danger for the particularly museums in Britain, but I think also on the continent where yeah. there's been heavy cutbacks. There's always that risk. And of course, the other one is indeed to hit not just high visitor numbers, but to hit diverse visitor numbers. Mm. So, you know, they, they, all museums have to be careful of that. But I think this is also an indication of changing idea of what a museum can be. And actually, I think is really interested in the definition of what a museum can be, which is quite interesting. But yes, I mean, we're totally aware of, like, how you impact and what a, a show should be. But, I mean... I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, art has become a very mainstream entertainment. Part of the Tate Modern's very much intertwined with that idea that people want to go, instead of going to a movie, they go to go to the Tate on a, on a weekend. And I think that's kind of the same kind of breadth of appeal. And I think that's actually a positive thing. If nothing else, if it means they go in the wrong room and experience the Douglas Gordon downstairs or like a room of something else that they would never see otherwise. And I think that that's a successful, let's say, combination. Also, I do think in a way, um, we, by taking your cinema metaphor a little bit further, I mean, it is almost like a multiplex, the Tate, in a way. You could have a show like uh, Eliasson and you could have something, I mean, they, I don't think they have got something really heavy and dry on at the moment, but I always remember when they did the Damien Hirst show and upstairs they had endless Beretti maps, which could not have been a greater contrast. I have to be honest, I actually enjoyed the Hirst show more, but it was kind so of, yeah, <laughs> I was, it was quite clear that the, the, the Beretti had been put on as a as a foil for, for those who are not going to enjoy the Hearst. What's interesting, and people sometimes talk about smoke and mirrors, and we've been talking about illusory and you know, perception challenging and this sort of thing. Um, do, do you think that uh, Eliasson is you know, clearly very successful and you know, he's got a formula that works, um, but he also likes to surprise and be playful? What would be the, the sort of logical next step, do you think, for him? And artistically, Jane, I wonder, do you think it might be the big surprise that it's actually not something huge in scale and huge in, in ambition and something more more modest? I mean, or do you think, like a, a lot of artists, maybe he's... Uh, you know he's going to be less inclined to to surprise, given you know he's got a formula that works pretty well. Well, I mean everyone everyone is uh, dangerously uh, at risk of kind of the the sort of middle aged sort of ideas dry up, which is very well known. I've no, I'm not saying that he had, that has happened to him, but you know he he runs that risk like all of us. Um, I think that um, it's hard to say with him because I think in many ways he's already gone well beyond the idea of the artist as the artist. I mean, the artist as activist, he's talked about the artist as entrepreneur. There was quite a lot of merchandise outside, which, I mean, is... is, is Directed green the, merchandise, yeah, largely. Yeah. yeah, and divert, and uh, I believe that that the, the, you know the proceeds of that is going to to support the causes that he's that he's involved in. So he's already kind of well beyond just the artist making art. I mean, it really actually amazed me that the final room in the exhibition is a focus like a college like crazy wall, which is basically of research, so imagery, music clips, quotes, and actually I found it quite fascinating. And I actually thought it was a really engaging after coming through all this kind of let's say more obvious interactive installations, the good Instagram picture, and you come out the other end and you 
actually get some serious, like, broad visual form of research, almost like book level, but in imagery and, and clippings, talking about our relationship to climate and e- ecological change. And that's something that's so fundamental at the heart of his practice that I actually thought that was super successful because he was, you know, he's, he's half Icelandic. He spent a lot of time in Iceland. He's been watching the glaciers melt and photographing it for the past 20 years and literally seeing them disintegrate. And obviously that's had a huge impact and the phenomenological relationship Mm. to light, et cetera, in that part of the world. And that's obviously had a huge effect on him. And obviously he's trying to find different ways in order to make us have that feeling. So maybe Mm. taking us through a foggy corridor and look at things that are playful and kaleidoscopic in order to punch through and actually get across information that's more difficult to consume, I think is actually a really successful thing. It's probably one of the most successful things I think he's done. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because I was looking at the one of the pieces I think you would, would talked about where you could see people's shadows on the wall. But actually a woman with a child turned around to one of the uh, the gallery assistants and said, is this piece about light pollution? And I was like, oh, I hadn't even thought of it like that. Probably it was. So I think, you know, I think you're right. He's definitely, he's definitely encouraging people to think about the environment. And this is a really good way, I think, to engage people. And I actually thought that balance was pretty good because it's rather easy or it can be a little too easy to come across a little preachy, a bit sort of didactic with those messages. But I thought they were reasonably uh, elegantly handled. You don't don't feel you're being instructed on you know, the, the the right way to do things going forwards. But I think that was Francesca's point about the research. I mean, it's clear that he runs his studio like a, a research lab and you get some sense of that from the the thing, the, the, the pieces on the, the, this kind of huge message board on the wall. Mm. So I don't think he's, um you know, he, he's clearly trying to develop new ways of thinking and new, new ideas. Um, just to go back to something you both actually were talking about, which was sort of the, the, the Instagrammability of this. Um, and it is interesting, I suppose, to, to look at Eliasson's career trajectory and he was doing this stuff definitely and definitively before that was, uh, you know, the main reason seemingly why a lot of people well, actually Instagram go, go wasn't to around, But I'm sure there's a picture on an old MySpace account. <laughs> there must be. Yeah. But it was almost kind of pre, or just as social media was kind of in its in its nascent stages. Um, is he someone who I don't know was was he sort of a, ahead of his time, or and do you think that how that's changed people's perceptions and people's engagement has it changed his work, Francesco, the way or his approach, do you think? I actually think he's not ahead of the time. I think he's literally smack bang at that moment when social media was exploding and I think his career has benefited from it enormously. The the big Tate son was hugely intertwined mm. with that rise of early social media and e- emailing and also, but more than anything, the camera phone. So even when before we're necessarily sharing images to the extent we were, the idea of that kind of breadth of camera phone access made it really much part of it. So I think that it's not, I think it's actually driven a lot of the success of his career, which you can really see in contrast to, the, let's say, the more conceptual, minimalist early works from like '99, when you're seeing that kind of that kind of populist engagement with it. I think it actually was like a really good driving force of him. Like, okay, I've got an audience who are interested in this and they're enjoying this. How can I make the most intelligent or poetic or beautiful statements about perception and the world through that? Well, talking about perception mm. leads us very nicely on, Francesca. We've been talking about exactly that, trickery. Uh, it's a big part of Eliasson's work, of course, and it does lead us nicely on uh, to an exhibition on at uh, Museum Moderne Kunst in Vienna. Mumok, can Mumok. I say that? Mumok. Mumok. Um, it's Vertigo. Mm. Tell us more. OK, well, it's an incredible show, and I think it's one of the best shows on this summer in Europe, which is a pretty good thing. It's across two floors, 
in the museum and its basic focus is on op art and kinetic art and the idea of perception from the 16th century, actually the 15th century, until, let's say, the 60s, So on the ground floor, you've basically got still works. So a lot of things on paintings, everything from like Piranesi, beautiful kind of fake versions of Rome and altarpieces that kind of seem to make your eyes go to like early examples like Bridget Riley and like Brazilian art. But then for me, it's the upstairs floor, which is incredible. It is the best collection of really early sort of installation-based interactive work I've ever seen, alongside incredible engravings of geometric structures, which were really fascinating. So one of my favourite pieces was Tony Conrad, which he did this piece called The Flicker from 66. So basically it begins where you're basically watching almost like an old um, silent film, and it's saying, by the way, is this might be a problem to watch this. It disintegrates, and then you watch a flicker, and the flicker gets quicker and quicker, and I swear to God it is like you are on hallucinogens. It's exceptional. <laughs> I, I wouldn't, of course, know. Well, no, but that's the entire thing, that it's purely and utterly the effect of your eyes looking at a thing giving you a physical effect. And there were numerous different pieces throughout this exhibition that had that kind of brain twist, mm. let's say. It was it was fascinating. I found it really interesting. And, Jane, it's interesting. I guess we, we were sort of reflecting on this a bit with the Elias discussion, you know, this idea of something that's a bit too... I don't know, too much artifice or too much superficiality or it's a bit of spectacle ahead of, of, of artistic merit. But certainly from what Francesca says, this really proves anything but. And actually, just because something is spectacular, playful, clever, challenges your perception, it doesn't limit or in any way its its artistic sort of value. No, and I think, I mean, you wouldn't say that about someone like, say, Robert Irwin or James Turrell, who are, I would have said also obvious influences on... Um, on Olafur Eliasson and I mean there's quite a lot of uh, I would say there's evidence looking at his work but also from things he's written about that he's very interested in that kind of 60s minimal you know kinetic perceptual work he's a great fan of Husserl although I have never managed really properly to <laughs> to wrap my head around Husserl and phenomenology but uh, I think that's all this show sounds like it's in the same area well, and what was really interesting reading the catalogue from the show they're also really placing it in the idea of like the legacy of concrete art so the idea of tangibility and the body and how actually linking it to 1960s like philosophical ideas that basically if you because the world is always going to be in relationship to you and if you're moving or you're aware of the fact that your positioning changes your experience of an object that it actually questions the idea of reality which i think is fascinating and you really see that connection between let's say the body, the work, your physicality. I mean, there's an incredible film, which I really recommend looking online, by Brian De Palma. We are very early of um, an exhibition that was at MoMA called The Responsive Eye. And I actually curated a show in response to this once. But it's basically people in MoMA, New York, in evening wear, jumping up and down and staring at their physical relationship to a lot of the same works that are on show at Moomok at the moment. So that was really fascinating, this idea of, like, how do we as physical beings relate to what we're looking at? And I think coming out of cubism, let's say, and then moving into something actually concrete that plays with your eyes like that. And I think there's a total connection between that that work is definitely a heritage to what Olaf has done, except with him, there's more colour, maybe it's a little bit more science. It's a little less sort of hard-edged. Do you mm. know what I mean? That 60s stuff feels so... A lot of it feels very brutal and really serious to me, like concrete poetry. Whereas it's strict, of, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you will look at this and your eyes will go funny. Or it feels very much like a, mathema a mathematician making art. Whereas Oliver feels more like, I don't know, a think tank. 
<laughs> which I imagine he'd be quite pleased about. Mm. Um, now, you already mentioned this, this idea of works going back to the 16th century almost. Mm, incredible. And, and, and I guess there'll be people like, at my first glance, I was like, surely not. Um, but I guess that does speak to the sort of, the, the, the fundamental, almost very innate human interest in having your perceptions challenged or sort of played with, toyed with. Um, did it did it sort of easily bridge that gap? Because we're talking about centuries of evolution, but from what you say, it sounds like it's a course that it tracks very elegantly. Well, it, would, it wasn't done in a purely chronological way. It was all intertwined, let's say, within sort of time frames. Um, but actually, it was quite elegantly done in terms of like the fusion. So you'd be looking at, let's say, proto escher engravings from the 15th century or images of Christ that included geometric experiments. I mean, the the Renaissance was purely based on the fusion between science and art. So I think this really shows how that our interests in, let's say, the geometric and the scientific can be totally intertwined with ideas around philosophical and visual and perceptive. But also, I mean, there's also some really great spiritual related work. There's some nice, another 1966 piece by James Whitney called Lapis, which is really rare and you're not allowed to film it, which is like being in a kaleidoscope with like a sort of an Indian raga playing in the background. And it again was like purely beautiful, very of its moment, but also incredibly well made in terms of the technicalities of what he had done to create this kind of kaleidoscopic effect from loads of little dots moving on a screen in front of you. It's really experimental. I mean, I, I, loved it I clearly loved this show oh, well no indeed and I, I wondered uh, do you think this is the sort of show where it could prompt a broader re-evaluation maybe of some of the protagonists work in particular some artists who might prompt people to say oh, we need to look at this in, well if you like in a, in a, in a fresh in, in a new light in a fresh way well in the same way when like David Hockney released a book once that was sort of showing the tricks of early Renaissance, you know, late Renaissance painters in terms of how they created perspective in paintings, which is incredible of him. And I think that in a way this show really highlights the fact that art is a conversation that's been going on and not everything is new. And the concept of newness is not always as interesting as the concept of a developing conversation. Mm. So I think it's always, we always think that we're the first people to innovate anything. So you go to an Olafur show and they're like, wow, it's the first time any of this has happened. And of course it's not. All the experiments have been going on in other fields for many years. It's just about the recontextualization of some of those conversations or looking back at things with a different point of view and going, well, I can totally see why that thing playing with ideas of space and form can relate to ideas of op art in a different way. But I think this definite desire to go to look at that op and kinetic thing because we're so uncomfortable with our bodies because of relationships to technology and the phone. We're so used to like being in ourselves and in our little bubbles that we're looking for things that make us feel embodied again. Uh, Jane, will you be making tracks for Moonwalk in Vienna this, that, uh, through till October? It sounds absolutely incredible and you have totally inspired me. I <laughs> <laughs> there we go. See, we're, we're in the inspiration business as well here on Monocle Culture. Um, Jane, uh, you were reminded, Let's if we could go back to Eliasson, um, of, and this, this again, this slightly sort of surprised me, but you're going to lift the, the things from my eyes. A uh, movement in art history that you think sort of, I don't know, is it a spiritual inspiration no, for Eliasson? I, I, I was just very struck. It's partic- particularly in the room um, where you see all the photographs of the glaciers. And I've seen this trait, I think, in other of his works. I mean, his description of himself as a young man and a young artist, you know, walking, kayaking through the, the Icelandic wilderness, taking photographs, drawing, it reminded me so much of these, and he, and he does have a relationship to 
uh, northern romantic landscape painters there's actually a reference in this show where there are two there are two round pieces where he's taken the color palette from two works by Caspar David Friedrich and he's using it to show sort of ideas around light but as I say I thought of him and I thought as you were talking about Francesca that relationship between art and science which of mm. course was a very not for all romantics but for many romantics it was a combination of people like you know constable doing cloud studies people considering how light changed and why it changed and obviously at the same time this pull towards the sublime and beauty which I think is a constant trait in Eliasson's work I mean Mm. uh, that we were talking about uh, you know the way the show looks he clearly likes beautiful things they're beautifully composed there's a real sense of colour and you know all these kind of traditional artistic qualities so I was very struck by that and I, I saw I basically looked at him and thought I bet as a young man you were passionate about the landscape as he is now you like beauty you are pulled towards the sublime um and I think that it's an interesting contrast to go and look at some of the artists who he has directly related to. One is Friedrich, another is Turner. Sadly, you can't see any Friedrichs in London, as far as I'm aware. The Nas- There's one in the National Gallery, but it's not Got on one. show. It's a beautiful winterscape. It's the winterscape. Yeah, and which it's, is beautiful. And it's not on show at the moment. Yeah. But so, so if you want to really go and see some amazing Friedrichs, you've got to make the trip to Berlin or Dusseldorf, I believe. But we do have some wonderful uh, Turners in the Tate Britain to go and have a look at. And he did a very similar thing with Turner's work he did uh, he took these color palettes and did work in response to them I think it's interesting though to to look at those as a contrast though because I think it probably puts a slight pinpoint for me about how I felt about this show and I thought he makes you think he really makes you sense things but it doesn't make you feel in the way that those artists do. He's not an artist that's about the inner life or mortality or any of those things. Mm, That's an interesting statement. Actually, I kind of agree with you. I wouldn't say... I mean, I had... Except for maybe in the moment of the fog corridor... Mm. The, the still passage or whatever. Which we still have a touch of the sublime. Yes, only because, but then I'm thinking, well, what is the experience that I'm getting throughout that that is sublime and beautiful and it's an inner one, actually, rather than a lot of the other works which I felt were more like, I wouldn't say they make my heart skip. I'll put it in that way. But I don't even know if that's their actual intention. It seems a more cerebral engagement. Yeah, I think I think I think he is at the end of the day. For all we were talking about, sort of you know fun fairs and whatever, I think he's really quite a, a cerebral artist actually. Mm. Uh, but that's really really interesting. Do you think then to a fault, Jane, almost, or is it is it is it overthought then almost? I don't think it's overthought. I think it's just a matter of taste, and I think that mm. um, you know you don't exp- you don't want all artists to be the same. So mm. so no, I, I I find I think Elias, and the more you think and you think about him and look at his work and read about him I think he does actually acquire more depth than might be Mm -hmm. superficially apparent but at least you don't have to read a press release to enjoy his work which is probably why hundreds of kids love going to it or understand it you can just enjoy it and you get it and I actually kind of really respect artists who learn how to do that because many don't so it's nice having work that is just immediately engaging. So that's probably another comparison with Turner, where it makes sense. Turner's just, it's a nice big blob of yellow foggy colour. So, and I think, again, yeah, you can see how that would be something that has a combination. of. So it's uh, thought-provoking, uh, very clever, very well thought out. But I sense, Francesca, no, no doubt in your mind that the exhibition people should be tracking down is what's happening. I mean, I'm a big it's fan what's happening of Vienna, in Vienna right now. Come on, Vienna's great. And Everyone you've got should until, go to Vienna. And you've got until, 
I think towards the end of October. Yeah, so there's plenty of time. time. No, Go, but start no on the upper floor. Anybody. Upper floor first. And you, you have totally persuaded me. It sounds like the, the Vienna show sounds fantastic. But Elisa, definitely worth a visit. Yeah. There you go. Fast cars via Tate Modern to the airport for Vienna. Perfect. Uh, that brings us to the end of today's programme. Oliver Eliasson's In Real Life is on at Tate Modern until the 5th of January 2020. Uh, thanks to my guests, Francesca Gavin and Jane Morris, and to our producer, Holly Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week. Robert Bound will be in the chair. But from me, Tom Edwards, for now, that's goodbye. Goodbye.